Hello and welcome back to another Animated Conversations podcast episode where we chat to interesting folk working in the visual arts and animation industry. I'm your host Andy Williams, a producer and director and today I'm very excited to be joined by Andrew Baker, film producer. Andrew, welcome to the show and could you just give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, uh, it's, it's nice to speak to you again, Andrew. Uh, so, I uh, my name is Andrew Baker, as you've heard. I am an animation producer, and specifically, uh, my focus these days is feature animation. Uh, my most recent project being the amazing Morris, uh, which was a Terry Pratchett adaptation, and in the UK, Sky were our main partner. Fantastic. How did you get started in animation movie production? Uh, not deliberately. <laughs> uh, so there was no carefully thought out strategy or plan. Um, I started out in television animation and had spent quite a lot of time working in the, the animation industry generally. Um, in parallel to that, I was doing work with companies outside of animation, um, specifically in uh, documentaries. And there was an opportunity for me to get involved in a project which became a theatrical doc. Um, and that was the first real feature I was I was probably involved in. And what happened was that we ended up doing that first documentary and that was a, a real learning curve. There was a, a lot of new things for me to try and take on board. And I started off, I guess, more as an advisor and over the course of the production became the producer of that particular film. And so my role, again, was not planned. I was supposed to be you know, more on the sidelines and had to um, get much more involved than, than was originally planned. Um, but with very much the agreement of all the other parties and everyone was going, let's all kind of make this work and, and, and let's, let's get it over the line. And we did, which, which was great. I was very pleased and, and I think it was, a, it was a good documentary and it did very, very well for us uh, critically and we won some awards and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and it was really at that point that having had that exposure to the film market and looked at the differences between what I was doing in animation series and what other people were doing in features, but, but not animation. And it made me, I guess, ask the question, which is, well, how would I do a feature animation? Because as we all know, a television animation uh, these days is very difficult to get off the ground. A lot of time and effort and and love go into them, and the success rate is not high. And I was looking for a business model that would allow me to have a bit more predictability in in my company, and a bit more of a regular workflow, I guess, uh, as well as doing projects that I thought were were really interesting. And so I was at the point of looking for an animated project to, I guess experiment on to to work on learn and learn and see if there was something that would work without really having huge amounts of knowledge of the international animation feature market it was very much me saying okay i better get into this it's it's something i think there might be an opportunity um, and it was just precisely at that exact moment that the fates intervened and a friend of mine uh, contacted me and said i've been at an awards event I've been sat next to a German feature animation producer. We were chatting about what we were doing. And, and this is in Canada. Uh, he's a Canadian producer. 
and he he said you'll never guess she's got an animated feature film uh, and is looking for a UK co-producer and it's a Terry Pr- and he literally got that far before I said yes <laughs> um, it was I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan and so the idea of doing a project that's a Terry Pratchett animation and it being a feature film it was just the right project at the right time for exactly the reasons that I wanted and so I really jumped into it and embraced it and went right this is this is something that I really want to do and one of the really fabulous things is that my my co-producer my German co-producer Ulysses Films in in Hamburg um are I guess one of the most experienced animation producers in Europe. And so I wasn't doing this on my own. I had, you know, a co-producer who was fabulously experienced, but who also felt that I was bringing something to the table in that, you know, they didn't really know Pratchett as an author. They, they liked the story, but they didn't understand the history, the subtleties of his text, the fan base. And as a complete nerd and a Pratchett fan, you know, I was in my element. And so that was yeah. something I could I could definitely bring. And also they were looking for financing from another territory. And because of Sky's long history with Pratchett, I was able to, quite honestly, do a cold email and get a meeting. And, um, and at the meeting, pitch the film. And they were interested. And, and then we, we developed that conversation and we, we carried on for quite a long time. Uh, developing the project and showing them new materials. And it, it led to them eventually um, commissioning this as a Sky original feature. And that really made the co-production work. And and so between Sky and the tax credits and the, the, the other monies that I brought in, we ended up bringing in um, over 50% of the finance for the film. And so it was a really true co-production in, in all senses. <clears throat> but... The areas I had less experience in, I had a, a fabulous co-producer who who had mountains of experience, um, and I also then um, chose some really great people to work with, who I had a lot of faith in, who again had lots of more experience than me, and so I guess it's the old adage of you know hire people who are far better than you, uh, and you know then then you have a great project, and and I think on the amazing Morris that's very much how it worked. Um, they didn't necessarily have all of the skills that I had, but they had specific skills that were incredibly vital to the production. And whether that was, um, you know, the producer that we brought on board, so Robert Chandler came on board as a, as a producer, or the studio, so we had Red Star and Sheffield as our UK studio, or the post facility, we, we worked with a, a facility called Splice in London on this. And all of those people just brought something really special to it. But it was for me it was it was being able to stand back slightly and plan how we were going to do it and learn from it and, and try to strategize because for me it's never been you know the goal is not i want to make one feature film because it's my passion for me the goal was actually i'd like to see if this is a business that can work that actually there is a you know a business in show um you know can you actually make these things on a consistent reliable basis and can you make a living from yep. it? And so for me, I was going into this with a perhaps a slightly different mindset than than perhaps someone would if they're a creator of a show, where for them it's the passion of wanting that particular story to be told. For sure, you know, the passion has to be yeah, there. Yeah. You know, I, I had to love the idea and embrace it. But for me, the goal was not to make one film. The goal was to make a film to allow me to learn and see if this was a real business and, and unlock a business model, hopefully, 
Um, and, you know, touching wood, uh, so far, so good. Um, you know, it, it feels like there is a market, there is a model, there is a lot of opportunity internationally. It's by no means an easy process. Um, you, there is no magic wand, I'm afraid. But there is a, an appetite internationally for feature films and I think a growing uh, awareness that the UK can bring something that European co-productions need in order to become more successful internationally. That's that's great. And it's really, um, it's fascinating to kind of see that journey from documentaries into animation. Uh, I mean, financing any movie is quite a kind of complex um, jigsaw puzzle. Um, and I'd imagine with animation, maybe there's another layer of that. Uh, what are some of the kind of key strategies that you took from your experience in doing documentary uh, film production that you could then transfer and apply to working on an animated feature? I think there's a, the good thing is there's a lot of similarities, not, not in terms of physical production, obviously, but in terms of the, the basic structure. And, and you could argue that's true for television as well. So television documentary, animation series for television, you, you know, you go and you get a broadcast commission, you you look at, you know, where you're going to be filming, what the cost is, how can you get tax credits or some kind of benefits, and then you have a, a distributor or a sales company who's going to help bring in some money um, and or co-production and, and, and that sort of thing. And so the documentaries I was doing, and I've I've done now... I think half a dozen documentary features over that period of time uh, that they're, they're so much quicker. I mean, <laughs> oh my God, so much quicker to make a documentary feature than it is to, to make an animated feature. Um, but some of the core principles are very much the same in terms of raising the finance. And I think one of the really interesting things is that animation, animation is always the kind of the, 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 the I guess the, the unloved child slightly in the marketplace. So, just as for series, in features, there's only a limited number of people who will actually do animated features in the marketplace. Yeah. And so when we were doing our documentary features, we were going to uh, distributors and sales agents who were very much uh, documentary focused. That was their, their 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 passion. They knew all the buyers. They they had you know a lot to say about how we were going to make it and the content and and the editorial. And that was something that that you know, we very much embraced. We didn't want to just go, well, you know, it's our film. You just do the boring selling bit and give us the money and we're going to make our, our passion piece. It was very much a, a collaboration and partnership. And for animated feature films, we have a similar situation where there isn't that many people that you can go to. And so there's always new people in, entering the market. But, but the reality is there's probably five or six companies in the world that you go to if you want a sales agent right. who does animation. That's Interesting. it. So that's the only people you need to speak to. And so by the time you've been to two markets, you've worked out who those people are and you go, right, well, those are the conversations I need to have. And and each of them work in different ways. So some of them might give you a minimum guarantee, some money up front. Others won't. And they'll say, no, but we'll take it to all the markets and we'll do lots of pre-sales and we'll be very aggressive and we'll we'll make it work. And so it's not really a case of, you know, one size fits all. Yeah. You really want to find the right sales agent for that particular project, given the other parts that you have. And 
and I think documentaries is is kind of a simpler version of that. There is a there is a lot more involved when you when you go into animation features, but that principle of a mosaic of financing of, of you know the the jigsaw bits that have to fit together to make the whole thing work is is very much true. And so really, animated features are are just independent feature films. It's the same way you would finance any indie feature. Yep. Um, the budgets need to be slightly higher than than a typical indie feature because the animation costs are what they are, but the principle is still the same. Um, and I think that that requires quite a lot of um, different skill sets. Right. And and so, if someone is an amazing writer and they've written the most fantastic screenplay in the world ever, um, the reality is they will not get an animation feature produced because that's not their skill set. Yeah. And you could be an amazing animator and you could you could kind of create the most beautiful character designs. But you are going to be absolutely lost at sea because actually what you need is all of those things when you're in production. But to get into production, you need all the other skills. Yeah. You need the, the kind of the financing and the sales and the accounts and the networking and all these other skills, which, you know, if you're in production, you don't get exposed to necessarily. Um, and so there is a, I guess, a gap between being someone who makes films and someone who who actually produces them properly, as in you know raising all the finance and structuring and, and everything else. Um, and I've been very lucky that my career path has been very much that side of production. Yep. And so, for me, it's been you know a struggle of course it's it's not an easy process but it's been a familiar struggle whereas the the creative side the developments the the, the, the creating the scripts the designs the, the pitch packs and then producing have been areas where I've I've had exposure to those but I've never you know historically never been in a role where my voice was one that was needed yeah um, you know, I was there to support the people who were doing that. I wasn't there to do that. And so for me, it's been the opposite journey. I've I've been learning how to find a voice creatively. And so I still, you know, do not for a second consider myself to be, you know, an all singing, all dancing producer. I have skills in some areas and other areas I'm developing. But that's why you work with incredibly talented people and why you bring people in. And, and it's a team effort. And you know, I genuinely don't think we would have made Morris or, or indeed the other shows that we're, we're, we're kind of working on now, you know, without teamwork, yeah. without having those those different skills. I don't think there are many, if any, people in the world who are experts at every single area. I mean, there are a few and we hate them um, <laughs> <laughs> because they're too talented. But but for, for the average, you know, average person in the industry, there isn't really a role that prepares you for this that you can learn yeah, from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's there, there is no easy career path. You know, nobody sat me down and said, right, Andrew, if you want to be an animation producer and make animated feature films, here is your career path. You, you, you do this role and this role and this role. And, you know, I've got to where I am at the moment through a combination of, of determination, luck, uh, doggedness and... Um, and I guess just randomness, you know, you, you know, it's something I was really passionate about, but I honestly didn't know what I was doing, and I still yeah, don't. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, and and you know, yeah, I mean, I think it, 
I'd kind of substitute randomness or openness. It's kind of that you've got, you know, you've got, a, you've got, a, I like you've got a, an entrepreneurial kind of instinct for uh, where there are opportunities and you kind of, you're open, you're open to that. Uh, and I think your point about yeah. that, um, the skill set not necessarily being something that creatives often bring to the table is, I think often creatives are so kind of um, full of passion and enthusiasm for a project that they're involved in that they maybe don't, it's hard for them to look dispassionately at how the project looks to the commissioner or the financier or that person behind that desk really and it you almost need somebody that can understand that mindset to to put all of those kind of financial jigsaw puzzles together and it maybe benefits from having a little bit of distance from the creative aspect even if there's an understanding of it yeah and i think it's often not a question of ability or intelligence or or anything it's just a lack of opportunity yeah um i think the industry generally likes to pigeonhole people and if you're an amazing writer it's probably quite rare for someone to say have a look at this financing plan here's a spreadsheet yep um have a look at the cash flow forecast um you know here's a here's a 65 page contract have a look through and see what you think um and if you get to a stage where you're running a production company you 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 kind of have to learn on the fly but you you learn in a in a sense that you're you're doing something that you've already been doing. You start a production company because you're already producing things for the people or you have a relationship. And so for features, I guess it's similar in that, A, there aren't very many happening in the UK, which, you know, is something that I'm I'm very much banging the drum and trying to encourage people to do more UK features because I think there is an opportunity. Um, But because of that lack of volume, there's a lack of opportunity for people to learn and to experience working on a feature. And to see what it actually means, um, and I think there are, you know, there are there are maybe a handful of people in the UK currently working on animated features, and the interesting thing is, it's it, there's a there's a huge gamut there. You're talking about people who make really low budget features for, for even a couple of million, all the way up to you know the likes of of Locksmith who are doing, you know, proper Hollywood features, yeah. uh, which are huge big budgets and. You know, their you know their their stated aim is to be the kind of the Pixar of the UK, and that's that's very much where they're focused and where their market is. But the deals they do are completely different from the deals that I do. Totally. So you know, I'm I'm at the, the the scrappy independent end of the of the market, and they're at the the kind of you know the top end where you know they're they're paradoxically in one way it's much harder, but in another way it's much easier. In that it's really, really hard to get in and get a deal. But if they get a deal, it fully finances their show. That's it. It's done. Yeah. Disney or Warner Brothers or whoever just gives them all the money. And that's it. That's your financing plan done. Whereas yeah. my financing plan might have 12 different sources of finance. And, you know, it's taken me years to bring them all together. And, it, you know, it, and I'm still short on my budget. Um, so, really, but it's, I mean, it feels like far from it, rather than it being kind of different leagues, it almost feels like you're operating, you're playing a different game in some ways at that yeah. level. The, the, oh, it is. The, the it rules are totally is. different. The rules are different. The goals are different. Um, the, the the whole process is different. And so, you know, it's it's a fascinating difference. And you, you look at other people um, who are in the market doing doing features and, you 
you know, in, in Europe, for example, um, so in, in, let's say in France, um, there is a such a different market, not just because there is different financing available and there are subsidies and other things, but actually just because the, the audience is there. So in France, people go to the cinema as adults hmm. to watch adult animation, to watch things that are perhaps more artistic, um, yeah. uh, that are less kind of commercial bums on seats, popcorn movies, but which are, you know, maybe a bit more challenging. They're, they're, they're about politics or yeah. about, you know, a particular issue. And I think one of the one of the problems we have in the UK is that historically we've not had access to that content. And so the audience almost isn't aware it exists. There's very few of those shows. If I go to Cartoon Movie, there's probably not a single film at Cartoon Movie that I've even heard of in terms of the UK as being exposed to it. And we're talking hundreds of movies. And and yes, some of them are utterly random, crazy stuff. And you think, oh, my God, how stoned were you when you came up with this idea? <laughs> um, but other ones are incredibly beautiful and really moving and, and really important stories. And we just don't get to hear them over here. And so as a UK producer or wanting to, someone wanting to produce animation in the UK as a feature the only real reference points you have are the American feature films or Arden. Uh, and, and so you, you kind of go, oh, well, that must be what we have to produce to do things. But, but the problem is you're either looking at, you know, Ardman is a, you know, incredibly well-established, fantastic brand who have the access and, and the record and credibility as well as the, the amazing skills, or you're, you're talking about top end, you know, Pixar movies, and as an independent producer, it's very hard to to really say, well, that's what I'm going to do. You know, it's it's such a, a gap. Whereas on the continent, there's a lot more independent small animation producers making things, not necessarily huge budgets, but but making things that they're really passionate about, and they have both the financial support and the, I guess, the recognition that that people go, wow, that was okay. It actually made zero money, but it won some awards and it, it had a really important message and, you know, we want to support you in your artistic endeavours. And, and it allowed people in the industry to practice what they do as well. Yeah. Oh, it does. And it, and it gives, it's, it's one of those things that at all levels, you know, whether you're talking about someone, you know, um, who's a junior animator just coming in, just coming out of college, maybe, you know, the, the, the reality is that there is so much more production happening it allows you to get experience. It allows you to experiment with styles. It allows you much more freedom to express yourself and to be able just to make more, yep. just 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 more. Because the more there is, the more people are involved, the more work there is, the more training, the more experience they have, and that really does have a, a beneficial effect. And and there's 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 a reason why, you know, all the big studios go to Annecy to try and recruit students. Yep. Um, it's because it, it feeds back into the industry and there's, you know, great courses that teach people to animate and to, to do all these things. So there is a bit of a, a kind of virtuous circle that the more you make and the more experience people have, the more, the more, the, 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 the more opportunities there are and the more people come into the industry. And I think in the UK, we're, we're getting there, you know, things are absolutely improving and we're doing great guns, but from from my very narrow perspective as a feature animation producer uh, in the in the indie side of things, 
there, there is very little support in the UK for what we do because it isn't a big enough part of the sector for anyone to really notice us yeah. yet. And that's something I'm hoping will change. But I think it's, I think there is a real opportunity for us. But the key thing is, it's not for us to do it on our own. Absolutely. And so one of the biggest things that I really feel is as a as an important thing for anyone thinking about doing a feature is is co-production. You have to work with other people. And there's that terrible word, the C word, which is compromise. Um, and uh, and that is one of the things that co-productions bring. And I think there is there is often a I guess a concern that if you co-produce with with one or multiple parties that your vision gets watered down and diluted and changed. And to a certain extent it does, but it doesn't mean it's worse. It might mean it's better. And I'd imagine in the, your, the example that you, you've you kind of worked on, which is The Amazing Maurice, that because there was such a strong IP and a, a vision inherent in the books, that all of the co-producers understood what they were making. I think that's sometimes the problem is if... If people have a di- if different co-producers have a very different idea of the show that they're making, it can it can kind of be diluted to the point where you're not sure what the point of the movie is or what kind of it's trying to express. Whereas Maurice, I'm sure, had a very strong kind of thing from the start. It did. So we were very lucky that we had a very strong IP to start with, and we had a, a very very strong scriptwriter working on it straight away. And so what came out was something that we all went, yes, that's that's what we want to make. Um, having said that, there are so many other areas that are nuances and things that you, we had to develop together. And so, for, for example, there is obviously a difference in language between the UK and Germany, English and, and German. What you, what you also kind of, I guess, stereotypically expect is that there's a difference in humour. And... What was great was that our director, Toby, um, who was, was working with us on, on the, the development, he was, uh, you know, he's a funny guy. I mean, just genuinely, he's, you know, if he wasn't a director, he'd be a comedian. Um, and he's a funny, funny guy, great sense of, of comic timing. But even with all of that, there were still areas where on the UK we were going, oh, I'm not really sure that that's where we want to go. And, and the Germans are saying, no, but this makes it really funny in Germany. And you have to find a midpoint somewhere. You have to say, well, we'll we'll let you have that, but we need to have this, and we could tweak it this way. And and it's 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 a difficult process to go through in one way because you know it's not just a question of me saying, well, whatever I want goes. You know, you have to compromise. You have to talk, and you have to develop things. But I I think that overall, it's an incredibly positive experience when it works properly. And if it doesn't work properly, then you're in trouble. Um, and and so one of the things that we have less experience of in the UK is of the necessity and the experience of co-producing. In Europe, everybody co-produces with everybody else all the time. They're, they're, if you look at some of the animated features that are coming out of Europe, they won't have two co-producers. They'll have three or four or five. And, I mean, that would scare the heck out of me. I mean, five co-producers? How do you manage that process? Uh, but the reality is, when there are specific incentives in different countries around Europe, if you're making something that doesn't necessarily have as much of a strong commercial lead, then 
you know, you, you need to take advantage of those subsidies. And, and that's not something historically we've always done. What would be your tips for and strategies for really kind of managing that um, co-production in a way that you get the best out of all of the parties, but that there's the kind of the amount of creative compromise is minimised? Yeah, I, I think that I think as you talked about already, that going into a project there needs to be a really clear shared vision, and I think if everyone can get on board at an early stage with the, the big things yep. and say, okay, that's the story, that's the market, that's the audience, those are the comparables, everything else is is always going to be easier. There's always going to be a, a, a good conversation there. And I think the good thing is, you know, people co-produce um, because they have to. And so, you know, if, if you know, some some very large company decided to give me all the money for my next film you know i wouldn't co-produce per se i would i would just produce it i wouldn't need to, to to get another production company involved but i would still need to have a studio and studios are you know in a way co-producers right. they're not just a service facility they're 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 adding things and they're they're kind of interpreting and they're they're kind of you know changing things as you go and so Everyone always, no matter how you finance it, no matter who's involved, you always have to have that touchstone, that shared creative vision of what it is you're trying to create and what you're trying to to do as a as a, as a whole process. And I think then it's just about it's about relationships, it's about people management, it's it's about you know communication, and you know genuinely. You know, I've had a, a really positive experience co-producing with uh, my co-producer on on Morris. So there's a Ulysses in Germany. They are brilliant, and we are doing other projects together. And for me, that's a success. Not just because the film worked and everyone is happy with it, and we didn't kill each other. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was it was it was more than that is that actually we want to do it again. Great. And how much better for me and for them to do another project where we already know each other yeah, yeah. and we've already, you know, got rid of some of those miscommunications. We've knocked the, the sharp edges off. We all know what it is that we would do differently next time or that we would do the same. And that just makes, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a whole lot of new things that we have to solve, but it, it just starts from a much better position yeah, yeah. Absolutely. because you're already familiar with each other and you already have that relationship. And, um, you know, for us, we had the added joy of COVID lockdown. Yeah. So we started production just as COVID was kicking off and no one knew what on earth was going on. You know, we started production thinking everyone was going to be in a studio. Right. And we very quickly went, oh, my God, this thing is going to be horrendous. We, we need to, to work remotely. Um, and so... Were there opportunities in that, though, as well? Oh, there were. There were. I mean, the, the downside is I met my co-producer several times before we greenlit the film. Yep. And I didn't see her again until delivery. Wow. Amazing. And so, you know, we were on the Zoom daily, but we didn't physically sit together and have a drink or a meal or a chat or we were just on the Zoom. And that's that's a really steep learning curve for anyone. You know, right. we've all got used to Zooms, but at the time, you know, no one was really spending a lot of time on, on, on a computer like yeah, this yeah. just staring at a screen with someone's face. You know, you have to, to have to bond with people. Um, the upsides were that, you know, our animators were, I guess, really inspired by the subject matter. We we had a, 
a really fortunate situation where people this wasn't just a another project for them it was it's a terry pratchett animation and people really wanted to work on this film they were you know we had some people who were turning down jobs that paid them more money to come and work on our film and and you know for us it was like wow this is amazing you know we've got really talented people that we wouldn't normally necessarily be able to afford because it's an, it's an indie budget yeah. you can't afford the big big salaries um but we were getting people whose skills and track record was phenomenal and then as you said the the upside for for covid was that people who we would normally not be able to recruit because they weren't in a particular part of the uk we were able to recruit because they were working remotely Absolutely. and so we had people you know, some of our team were based in London and our studio is in Sheffield. Yep. And normally you'd say, well, that's a bit of a commute, Andrew. Uh, and it's like, yeah, but it wasn't because they were all remote. Yep. And so it meant that our talent pool was much wider. Um, it meant that obviously there was a lot more effort in building a team and, you know, that that whole relationship side of things. But um, if anything, the issue we had was trying to make sure that the animators left their desks and stopped work because you know animators being as they are you know their idea of heaven is to have their headphones on and be in their bedrooms on their computers and we were paying them to do that and it was like guys you've got to get some you know downtime because you don't want it's kind of important they don't burn out at the same time and i think uh, i mean it's probably obvious to all of the listeners but um animation production was probably the least disrupted um part of kind of the entertainment industry in a lot of respects because like you said it was possible for a large part of the crew to kind of to work remotely did you did you find you mentioned before that you had an animation studio based in Sheffield and another one in Germany uh, how did how did you manage that kind of passing of the baton from one studio to the other was that um, a learning experience for everyone concerned how did that kind of work it was a combination of things. There's always a learning curve because when you've got two studios who've never worked together, even if they've worked with other people, so you know, even if they've done co-productions before, a new party to a new co-production is always a learning curve. Um, the the great thing we had was that in Germany their studio was very used to co-productions, so they came in going right. Well, we do this all the time. This is how it works. And the UK studio Red Star had not done a co-production. But they came into it very much saying, we want to make this work. We want to um, make sure that this is the best it can be. And we want to learn ourselves how to, to do these kind of projects to, to actually be a proper co-production. And so we had a lot of willingness and, and, and good intention and good faith in there. Everyone just said, let's just do this. But we started off from a position of, you know, making sure that there were some fundamentals in place, that the... The, the pipeline in both studios was actually incredibly similar. Um, they were using the same kinds of software, often the actual same software, um, in the same way, with the same kind of processes. Um, and every production is different, but the way that we did it is that some departments were were very much, right, you do this department, we'll do that department, and you have to hand to us the output at that stage of the production and we will wait for you and then we will do it and that's good in that you then say great well that's just ours we'll just do that but it's also problematic in that there's no slack in the schedule so 
someone else is waiting for you to hand over, you know, I don't know, someone's done rigging and they're there, so they're waiting for the rig to start, you know, the next phase of, of production. Well, if you're a week late, the other guys are sat there for a week waiting for something to actually do. Whereas if it's all within the same studio, you move people around, you, you, you know, you find the, the, the ways to make it work. So that, that can be very challenging. You have to be very careful about that. But other departments, we actually just shared the work. So we split the animation. And what we ended up doing is building a team structure where our animation director was essentially in charge of all the animation across both studios. And we just, because everyone was remote anyway, it actually ended up being easier to say, well, actually just treat everyone like we're all one studio. Let's just all work together and do this. And what we ended up doing is is essentially building it so that all the assets were shared continuously. It was all, you know, in the cloud, backed up to both locations. And so there was none of this issue of, well, we're not going to share this asset with you because it's proprietary or there's a, a plugin that only we can use or... You know, it was very much saying, look, this is one studio. Um, and I think that's that was down to the people who were running the studios and their their willingness and openness in, in doing that. Um, you know, we did approach some of the studios in the early days. And one of the problems we had was that they hadn't co-produced with another studio. And so much of what they did, they felt was proprietary, that they said, well, we're not going to share any of these assets. And it's like, well, you need to share the assets because they need to pick up and then do the next thing. No, no, but we can't because that's ours. We've, you know, we've spent a lot of time and energy and money developing these things. And it's like, well, that's great, but I need you to co-produce. And if you're not going to co-produce, I can't wait. Um, it's just not practical. And so, you know, there are studios out there who I would love to work with, but only if I've got all the money uh, um, and I don't need to co-produce. Um, and it's a very different skill set to co-produce as a studio than it is just to make a show from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I'd imagine that having a strong director whose kind of vision is filtered through the different studios, that helps kind of give it a unity. Oh, very much so. And, and our, our kind of leadership team, you know, both in terms of the directors and, and um, you know, the, the, the heads of studios and things, they really made the film work. There, there was no, you know, no hesitation there. You know, Toby, our director, was across everything, just, you know, communicating his vision. Everyone kind of, you know, really respected his voice and what he was doing. And, you know, he's an incredibly talented guy, but he was also very open to other people's suggestions and ideas. And, you know, even me, you know, uh, even an idea that I had, he went, that's great, we'll do that. And it was like, oh great, okay, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, so yeah, it, 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 as I said right at the beginning, this is all about teamwork. The only way these things work is because of the team. You know, I am not an animation director, and you know, I'm not a, a film director, and those people need to be part of the the process. And you need people who are really good and really passionate, but who also buy into that vision and and that creative concept. Then go great we know what you want to make we agree that's what we want to make as well let's all make it together amazing i mean we you talked a bit about the 
you've talked about the kind of the creative crew and the and the studios in terms of the voice actors and the um and the stars of the shows how early in the process were they attached to the to the film the amazing maurice because you have a very starry cast yes we have a a, a, a dare i say an amazing cast um everything has to be amazing <laughs> for the amazing maurice uh so we we genuinely had an amazing cast um so we we financed the film with no cast attached and that was a deliberate strategy from our perspective in that we we weren't sure obviously what was happening with covid we weren't sure what the the scheduling would be like when we would need people uh, how disrupted we would be um and we were aware that their schedules might also be disrupted due to filming or you know even just being ill with covid um and so we were very lucky in one way in that um ulysses previous feature films were all made without star voices right so none of them have if you like recognizable hollywood names attached they're all you know incredibly good voice artists but they're not stars necessarily in the international sense they might locally be well known but but not not otherwise so for them and for the sales company there was no expectation of a of a particular level of cast um, and we had a very good conversation with sky where we were saying look if we can go into production and we can go to our you know our target cast and say we need you for a couple of mornings work any time in this three to five month window and we'll pay you really good money for basically just turning up doing the recording in london there's no makeup there's no costume there's no 6am starts you know it's all very civilized and you'll have a wonderful time and it's a it's a great film we're going to get a much better response because it's already financed and it's guaranteed yeah. and we can find a window where they're available and we can go great we'll just be opportunistic and get that do you think covid helped to talk that because you had a lot of actors that that couldn't because the live action studios for a period of that time were still uh, closed. So you had probably a lot of actors that were kind of at home looking for looking for ways to alleviate the boredom at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the reality was that, you know, we, we had big ambitions ourselves, you know, going to cast when you don't have a feature financed can be hard because they say, well, if I'm committing to this film, well, I'm blocking out my diary. And actually, if the film doesn't happen, then I'm losing work and I need to get paid. And, you know, as a small feature, you, you don't do, you know, pay or play deals where, where essentially you guarantee to pay the cast no matter what, yeah. um, because it's too expensive. Yeah. You know, where does the money come from? Um, and so, we we had a you know a really good conversation with Sky and they they backed us to the hilt on this and we said look we will get amazing cast um, and we will we will get them because we can go and say that we're in production it's a definite booking we will pay you the money and it's it's very flexible and it's a great project and we've got designs we've got script you know we had the whole package they could really see what we were asking them to do and. The agents, I think, were were very receptive to that. They 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 were obviously aware that their their stars were not always working all the time because of COVID disruptions, but actually a surprising number of them were. They they were saying, "I know it's COVID, 
but I am still working. I'm busy. Um, but I could do that week. I've got a you know weeks gap in between filming, and I can do it then. And and because we were be able to be flexible with the recording, then it, it worked incredibly well. Um, for projects I'm doing right now, we are we are doing a mix. We, for for certain roles, we are trying to get cast to say yes up front, and we can go to market saying we've got blah blah in in the role of this character um but maybe just one or two and then everybody else we will cast when we actually are green lit and we can do exactly that we can say right there are casts that we would love to have who are big 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 names the reality is we're not going to get on their radar and we're not going to be able to afford them unless it's just that opportune moment where they go okay you know i've, I've had a break from doing you know multi 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 million dollar uh, movies um, you know, doing something that's fun and interesting and that the kids or grandkids can watch is is a good laugh. And it's only going to be a you know a morning's work. Yeah, great. I'll I'll do it next week. You know, and we can just turn it around and say, great, next week is fine. When do you want to do it? Um, yeah, and that flexibility I think ends up being uh, a key kind of a key power for for you as a producer to be able to accommodate that. Do you the often with live action? My impression is with live action feature films that. Um, a question that the financiers might often ask is who's in it um, and do you think do you think do you think with animation there those expectations are different is it that I mean in a way for the amazing Maurice was was kind of rather than who's in it was the star Terry Pratchett in that respect and that was what allowed you to sell that product yeah I mean I and we're, I'm doing live action features at the moment, um, and and so f for us, you absolutely need cast. Everyone says, "Okay, we love the script, great idea, fabulous. We get that you can make this. Who's in it?" Um, because that completely changes your film. Yeah. It, I mean, genuinely, it, it's one of those things that you know a cinema going audience will go, "What is it? Who's in it?" Yeah. And you know, if I said it's Top Gun featuring Andrew Baker. Yeah, not really going to get many people going and seeing that. Whereas if it's Top Gun with Tom Cruise, it's like you haven't read the script yet, you haven't seen the film yet, you're paying on spec to go into a cinema, you know, quite expensively these days. Um, and why do you do it? It's because you recognise the name on the poster and you go, I like them, I really enjoy, you know, Julia Roberts is fabulous, I'll go and watch that, it's a Julia Roberts film, it must be good. And even if it's not, it doesn't matter because you, you've got what you paid for, which is a movie with Julia Roberts in it. And um, and the, the the kind of cachet, the brand, if you will, is is those actors. So for live action, you need them up front. You need to, you know, it's part of the financing process. You've got to get cast available. Um, and and when cast aren't available, the whole thing grinds to a halt. And you, go, oh my god, we can't start filming. There's no cast. Whereas animation is so much more flexible. You know, and do you we, think we with animation, start... in a way, the star is the IP more rather than the actor? So like with Mario Brothers, there were famous people in Mario Brothers, but it, the IP is probably what brought people to the cinema. Uh, likewise with Spider-Verse or, yep. or Mutant Ninja Turtles, that in some ways all of those shows, the, it, it, isn't the, it isn't the voice actor that's often bringing the audience to the screen. It's, it's I would say, where there's a really strong IP, um, then that is absolutely something that, that brings people to the audience, uh, you know, the audience into the cinemas. However, there is so much value in having named cast. And you don't need hundreds. I mean, you know, we're talking one or two names. But when you're, when you're trying to sell a film internationally, 
Uh, and this is not to the audience, this is to the, the local dis distribution companies who are going to pay you an MG to take the rights to a particular territory. They, they're going to dub it. So it's going to be in French or German or, you know, Swahili, whatever the language is. It's not going to be necessarily, you know, the Amazing Morris featuring Hugh Laurie and Amelia Clark. It's not because it's, you know, so and so and so and so. And, you know, uh, somebody showed me once the, um, uh, the Italian guy who did the voices for Tom Cruise. He's got like a really deep, rich Italian, you know, voice. And it's just not, you kind of just laugh and go, oh my God, that's not Tom Cruise. But for Italians, that's Tom Cruise's voice. They look at Tom Cruise and that's the voice they put on him. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but internationally, people will change the voices. And so when you're selling a film, it's about a package. And so, yes, an IP is fantastic. If you can have an IP, that really works. But as big as Terry Pratchett is, there were still a lot of buyers internationally that went, who's he? He's a really famous English author. Oh, is he? What does he do? He writes these great books, you know, quite a lot of them, and they've sold quite well internationally. Oh, okay. Others, you know, went, okay, Terry Pratchett, we love it. You know, we love Terry Pratchett, you know. And, and it became a, a thing that we realised that some buyers knew him, and that was the hook. That's why they wanted the film. Some buyers had no idea who Terry Pratchett was and had never read his book, never heard of him, but they read the screenplay and this writer of the screenplay, his name made them go, ooh, this is interesting because he's a named writer. So it was Terry Rossio who wrote Shrek and Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean and, you know, great, great, great films. And so he was the hook. Other people, it was, oh, look at your cast. This is amazing. It must therefore be a big value film because look at your cast. Even though we're recording it and, and, and there's going to be new voices, the fact that you had people that we recognise from other movies means it's a certain quality level. It must be because you've got famous people. I mean, as you're describing it, it feels like you're building a bingo card. That kind of you're looking for lots of columns that the financier or whoever the decision makers are can tick. And, and if they've got enough boxes ticked, that kind of gives them some security in terms of kind of backing the movie. Well, it does. And, and there is an element of trust and faith because they are committing to buy a film that you haven't made yet. And which is an, which is a remarkable kind of situation really is that in yeah. some ways they're committing to buying something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. As you said, Honestly, it's like walking into a car showroom and the guy saying, here's a really rough drawing of what the car will look like. And um, it's going to be brilliant. And we've got Fabio in Italy who's made cars before and he's, he's going to make it. So if you give us the money now, in 18 months' time, we'll deliver the car to you. And you're going, yeah, all right. And, you know, that's that's the, the situation you have. And so, you know, those those buyers have to have as much comfort as possible. And so, you know, it, it, the bingo card analogy is really good. I like that. I might steal that from you. Um, but but you do. And you say, OK, what if you have a writer who isn't a famous writer? Well, you can get around that by the fact that you've got a script that you can show. So if people can read it. But some of these buyers have not very good English. 
And so I'm not translating it into 15 different languages. I'm giving them an English language script and they go, well, you know, I can read it, but I don't really know if it's any good. So what do they go on? And you go, well, what's the director? What's his track record? What else has he done that I liked? Who are the producers? What have they made? Um, is there anything there that I've already bought that did well? Um, who are the voice actors? Are they famous? Is that going to get people in? Who are the studios? Um, who's the art director? Who's the composer? And you, you, you have all of these different things and you go, okay, you need as many ticks as you can get. Yep. There is, and everyone has a different threshold. And, you know, if you're talking about big markets and big money, you need quite a few ticks. If you're talking about, you know, Albania, where their minimum guarantee is, you know, $5,000, they just want a film they can put on that the kids will watch. Yep. That's it. They don't, they're not going to pay me five times the money if I was Pixar because they wouldn't buy Pixar movies. They're only, you know, and, and equally the big companies locally wouldn't buy my film because the budget isn't big enough. Um, and again, one of the tick things is budget. They want to know what are you spending so I know what the quality is. And if I say to them I'm spending seven million pounds on an animated feature film, they'll go, oh, really? That's not going to be very good. If I'm spending 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, which, by the way, I'm not, <laughs> um, then they go, oh, well, I must be good then. you know. And so you look at films like, uh, I don't know, Nomeo and Juliet, for example, yep. or How to Train Your Dragon, and, and you start going, okay, those are films at particular budget levels, and with the budget level comes an expectation of quality for the animation because you can spend more time. The animators have more time to do things, the director can ask for more retakes and changes. You know, the schedule is longer. Um, you can afford to pay more money, so you get maybe slightly better people. Um, you know, your composer, is it someone who's done a few films or is it John Williams? You know, and the, the price differential between those two is enormous. And the budget determines what you can afford. And what you can afford is often a perceived quality. And it might be that, you know, my mate down the road who, you know, is in a local band could do an amazing job. But the buyers internationally are less likely to buy it unless I have someone who is a really good composer, unless everything else in the film has already got a tick, in which case they don't care about the composer. But if they were worrying about some of the other bits and they only had three ticks instead of five, having a really good composer who's done some great animation before makes them go, oh, okay, well, you know, everyone else seems to be really good. So... Maybe it'll be okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great way of... Yeah, that's a great summary of all of the obstacles that you kind of need to um, get across to, to sort of bring your movie to fully funding and into production. Um, you talked a bit of... We've, we've been talking about specifically about um, existing IP and brands. How do, you, how do you handle those negotiations and legalities, regarding kind of big legacy IP? The obvious thing is that the bigger the IP, the more protective the, 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 you know, the IP owner will be. Um, because normally they don't know who you are and they, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to have a conversation with you. But, you know, if I go and say, I'd like to make Harry Potter, please, you know, the agent's going to say, who are you again? You know, we've got Warner Brothers talking to us at the moment, and, and who are you? Um, 
you know, hmm, uh, am I going to go with you or am I going to go with Warner Brothers? Are they, you know, are, tough... are, they, are they pulling out their own bingo cards just to kind of torture the oh, analogy? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what they're doing. They're, they've got their score sheet and they're going, where are you on our score sheet? Um, and so it, I think we were very lucky in that uh, Ulysses had already optioned the IP. Right. So and and so that was already sorted. But there, because she was in Germany and she wasn't really into Pratchett, and because the project takes so long to develop, the estate at the point I arrived were not really engaged. Mm because they're going, well, nothing's really happening. We don't meet this person very often because they're in Germany. We don't really know who they are. Um, you know, they've got a good track record and we ticked them on the score sheet, as you were saying, the bingo card. But, you know, we're now looking at it and going, well, what's happening? It's taking years. Surely you just, you know, flick a switch <laughs> and you start, you know, um, because they'd never made an animation, uh, you know, as, 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 as that way. And, um, and so one of the things that I really wanted to do, partly just for my own pure fanboy kind of, you know, satisfaction, was just to build a relationship with the IP owner. But for all of the projects I do, that relationship is really important because the bigger the IP, the more important it is that you are honouring the, the, the kind of the, the, the ethos of that IP. So we made changes to the story for The Amazing Morris. But we made them very deliberately and we made them in consultation with the, the Pratchett estate. Other people in other IPs that I've watched, so I, you know, if, I, if it's a book I read and I go, what a great book, and someone says, oh, it's being made as a movie, great, I'd love to go and watch that. And you sit there and you go, I'm so disappointed because I know the book really well and that character wasn't supposed to do this. Yeah. And, I, you know, this, this, this. So, you know, um, uh, like the the Jack Reacher novels, uh, as, a, as a as an example, the main character is supposed. To, I don't know if you know them, Andy, but the main character is supposed to be this foot six, hugely intimidating big bloke, and they're Tom Cruise playing the role. Now, as as a fanboy, I'm kind of going, I don't see it. I really don't. The guy is supposed to be like you know the side of a mountain, and it's Tom Cruise. It's not that he's not a good actor, or that he's you know all these kind of things. But it's like it's not what I was expecting. And so there was a hurdle to get over. Now, you then watch the movie and you go, oh, it's a good movie, it's fine, you know, not a problem. But without knowing that in advance, you, you kind of automatically have a barrier to, to that movie. And the IP potentially becomes a barrier because the fans go, oh, well, that's not how we envisaged it. Therefore, we're going to boycott this film without even watching it because that's not the way I see it. And the danger of an IP is exactly that. If you're not faithful to the brand, you before the audience gets a chance to see it, that the fans have already killed you. They've already gone online on Twitter and Reddit and Facebook and or X as it is now anyway. Um, but it, you know they kill it before it starts because they go, well, you know this is going to be another Hollywoodized, Disneyfied, you know rubbish retelling of the story. What they don't see is that as a producer you can't just make the book verbatim totally you you have a book that's a five six hour read and i have to make that story in 90 minutes in animation and and so do you think as a producer part of because as you're describing that i was wondering whether i'd assume that 
your movie can't just rely on the only people going to see the film are Terry Pratchett's diehard fans. But um, what what the diehard fans can do that they can break a movie even if they can't make a movie entirely by themselves. Absolutely right. You know, the, the, the point of it is that for a movie to be successful, you need a wide audience. Yep. Now, you want that to include the fans of the existing IP. So if, if I'm a big Mario fan, you know, I, as a producer, I want those Mario fans to come and watch the Mario movie. Of course I do, because that will bring other people. It gets word of mouth. It, it, but you're right. If, if I release information about the film and all the fans go, oh, my God, you've butchered it. You know, Mario is now, you know, not what I expected. You know, uh, uh, this is going to be awful. And that could be Teenage you know, Mutant Ninja Turtles. It could be, you know, it could be anything. Um, you do have a danger that the, 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 the core fan base are so passionate and love the IP so much that what you're doing is sacrilege, essentially. You're, you're, you're destroying the brand and they are out to get you. They, <laughs> they will not be happy. And so there is a, there is a pro and a con with having that, that, that IP. Whereas if I've got an original idea that no one's ever heard of, I'm starting with a blank slate and my idea lives or dies by how I present it because there's no preconceived notion of what that should be or how it should be. And I don't have any restrictions on how I want to make it work. And so, you know, I, I had a joke with the, the estate um, when we were doing Morris and we were talking about, you know, what changes we could make and, and, and this sort of thing. And, and I was saying, well, you know, sometimes you do a deal with, a, with an estate and, you know, I, I, I could potentially say, well, we'll keep the story, but I'll, I'll change the characters. And so Morris the cat could become Morris the dolphin. And, and you know, from a story perspective, you can go, well, how is that going to work? But, but these are the things that the producers have to think about because they go, well, maybe there's four cat movies out already and, and maybe we can't have a cat in that lead role. Maybe it needs to be a dog instead. Or, you know, our, our studio, um, you know, research department is telling us that dogs are in and cats are out. You know, it, I, I don't know. So there's, there's often a, a tension between commercially, what are you trying to produce? Because it has to hit a wide demographic. You have to get that audience and, and actually satisfying the IP owners and, and the fans of that IP as well. And so I think the, 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 the kind of short answer is you have to approach things very carefully. You've got to really think through. Um, and, and I think for me, the question is always, why do you want the IP in the first place? So if, if you're going to take an IP and rip the guts out of it, why bother? Why don't you just make something original? And then no one's going to criticize you for it because it stands or falls based on, on what you do. But if you say, I'm making Lord of the Rings, and then you just rip the guts out of it and you know it's a complete it's a cowboy movie you go what it just this is bonkers why would you do that um and it feels to me that as a producer you just have to have a really good idea of why you're doing that ip and if you're doing it because you love the story and the characters and you want to bring them to life then that's fantastic and that will work because you will find a way to satisfy everybody hopefully um if you're doing it just because, well, it's a name and I can get it financed, then that's the wrong thing to do because ultimately it won't work. Because, as you said, um, it's so easy for negative publicity these days uh, to, to affect people's perception before they've even seen your film. And it's so difficult to get a film financed and, and into cinemas anyway 
you really don't want anything uh, as a barrier. You don't want anyone kind of saying anything other than good things about your movie. Totally. And you, to flip your uh, analogy of Maurice, why, uh, why not make Maurice a dolphin rather than a cat? That also kind of points towards one of the strengths of existing IPs is that, is that it does tend to anchor the, the vision of a show in a way that sort of protects it to some extent from everything being up for grabs and well market research has told us this why don't we change that um it 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 gives a reference point outside of that which sometimes i think helps protect the kind of the vision of the existing property because because it already exists out there and there's some expectation it's going to follow that and the the really important thing is when you're trying to communicate someone what your film is about which is, you know, essentially why are they going to give you money to make this? Why would someone come and watch this? You have to tell them a story. You know, it's, it's your pitch is storytelling. You're, you're saying, this character does this, and everyone's going, oh, really, what happens next? And the great thing about having an existing IP is that you know those characters resonate with people. You know that that world makes sense. You know, you wouldn't you know mario would not be successful if people didn't go those are fun characters we we want to see what happens next we enjoy it but also you kind of know what you're expecting you're expecting some chasers and some action and you know and therefore when you're trying to pitch this and sell it having that strong ip does make the the process of pitching easier in that you do have a very clear vision if you don't have that ip you then have to make sure that you're you're de- you're developed enough in your project that you've solved those questions. And so I have a project at the moment where, literally, it's an idea that 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 um, uh, really I've come up with on the basis of what's in the market, what works, what kind of stories do I think might work really well, and what do I want to to do as a as a, as a filmmaker. And it's a one-line pitch at the moment. Now, I can't pitch that to anyone because it's too many holes. You know, I, 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 I have a vague sense of what I want to do, but it's not there yet. And, you know, we've, we've got a title that might work or that might change. And we've got a vague sense of who the characters are. But, but, but I know what kind of movie it's going to be, but I don't really know the story yet. And so until I get a writer on board and work with the writer for six months to a year... I can't really go and pitch that because it's not clear. Whereas if I had a book already, I could go, bam, read the book. We're going to make Terry Pratchett. You know, it's going to be fab. And people go, oh, okay, let's, let's have a conversation. They'll still want to see the screenplay. You know, that you don't get a complete short circuit. Um, but it does open the conversation much easier. Whereas if I'm starting from scratch, I have to convince them that not only is this a good story and that it hangs together and they're good characters, but the audience will actually want to watch this. Whereas if it's a best-selling novel, you, you kind of skip that step because it's like the audience will watch this because it's a best-selling novel already. Yeah, totally. And, and, and imagine even if you do persuade them on the one-line pitch, that there's a danger that if the idea and the concept isn't sort of well-developed enough, that nobody really knows how far you can stretch that elastic band before it snaps in a way that... You, you have a, a good sense of that with an existing IP or a very developed idea, I think. Yeah, you really do. And I think there is, 
you know, again, the bingo card, there is a safety um, in saying these characters have been read by hundreds, if not millions of, 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 of people, so hundreds of thousands or millions of people around the world, translated into different languages, and they've all really enjoyed the story. And therefore, your your kind of audience testing is already done. You've you've you know you've got a you've got something in there that people like. The trick, of course, is keeping the bits that really make the story unique, and and not and and, and yet discarding enough that you can fit this into a ninety-minute movie rather than a you know a six-hour movie. Um, and so, it's still a challenge, but it it really does help you on that bingo card if you can say. There is an IP that people recognise. Um, without it, you just have an extra step to go, which is, will people actually like this? Uh, and that's, that's then my job as a salesperson, I guess, to go, it's going to be great because, and, and you know, telling you the story and you go, wow, this is great. Um, so somebody pitched me a project uh, a little while ago, uh, and I'm, I'm now attached to, to produce it. And, you know, I hadn't heard of the book before. Um, so it wasn't something where I went, oh, wow, I love this book. I love the author. I didn't know the book. It was a children's book. I hadn't read it. Uh, the trouble is, when you've got children of a certain age, you're very aware of the IP and the landscape. When they get older, you don't read the younger stuff anymore. So my, my girls are teenagers, and I, I'm not reading stuff for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, Niels. Um, and, and they pitched this show to me, and it was the director uh, uh, pitching it to me. And... You know, I really, he really drew me in and he really sold me on the characters and the world. And, you know, it was, it was a great pitch. You know, I really enjoyed it. And, and so it doesn't matter that I didn't know the book, but the fact that it was a book already and it had won lots of awards made me go, okay, well, that's, that's really good. If it was an original idea, I'd be going, hmm, it's a great story. But I just, is it going to work? Are people going to watch this? Um, but the fact that it's already an award-winning children's book makes you go, well, you know, people like it. They do like the story. There, yeah, is, yeah. there is that Amazon reviews going, you know, my kids love this story. It's great, you know. Um, so it does help you. It really is an extra totally. little tick in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're pulling out the scorecard as well. We've all got the scorecard. Um, we all do. Yeah. Um, circling back a bit, um, you talked about, about well, that there are opportunities for feature film animation in the UK that maybe aren't being kind of, uh, that people aren't kind of grabbing with both hands. What do you think, what are the pros and, and cons as well, but the, what are the differences between series animation production, which is there's probably more people vying for that than there are feature film animation production? What what do you feel are kind of the, the pros and cons on both of those sides? And do you think, I guess where I'm leading to is, do you think that people underestimate the opportunities for feature film animation? Uh, and the short answer to the last bit is, yes, I think they underestimate it. I, th I mean, yes, it's a very hard market. Of course it is. There, there is no easy market. Um, but unlike broadcasters, um, there is an ongoing, continuous demand internationally for feature animation. Now, there will, I'm sure, get to a point where there is so much feature animation that there's a glut, you know, we don't need more. But, but at the moment, it's so hard to make them and it takes so long that that very much isn't the case. Um, and so, you know, 
the sheer volume of series animation that gets made around the world means that acquiring rather than commissioning is a really viable option as a broadcaster. You go, well, you know, do, do I commission you to do this and, and wait for it and risk um, it not being very good? Or do I buy Paw Patrol, which, you know, is already being made and it's got fabulous ratings from everyone and I can watch it and decide if I like it and I'll pay a fraction of what I would pay to commission it. And, <laughs> you know, it's hard to argue with that logic, really. Yeah. It is. Um, what it does is it crowds out the original voices and the smaller production companies and, you know, it just makes makes the industry, um, you know, much more, um, I guess... It, may, it makes it much less diverse and yeah. and I think the diverse voices are really important in, in, in the industry and so one of the great things about an, uh, feature animation is that um, from a from a commercial perspective you, you're not restricted by saying okay I can pitch this to BBC and if they say no I'm stuck right it's like actually you can pitch it to a lot of people it's it's fine and they're not going to say we've already got one, you know, the old Monty Python, you know, thing, oh, we already got one. Um, that, unfortunately, is a cry you hear from broadcasters. Oh, we've got a show that's about the environment. Yeah. What? Really? Oh, we've got one that's about books. Yeah, but but doesn't matter. You know, I've still got a great show. Yeah, and The broadcasters, absolutely. you know, often, often say, well, we, we feel we have something already that's too similar. And because... And that, that, you're that, talking... that is a kind of constant refrain. Yeah. And, and we're, we're already going to show that friendship or the environment or yes exactly and, and the thing is there are so many episodes to a series that a broadcaster says yeah but I'm, I'm showing this and then repeating it and so that one title is on every day for a whole year yeah. for argument's sake um, whereas a feature film is a 90 minute block of content that, that takes you on that journey and, um, and so the story structure is very different and everything but it, it tends to be a one-off thing and kids watch it again and again and again and again but it's still just a 90 minute block of content and there is a limit it won't be shown every single day of the year by one particular broadcaster they will they will, they will show it they will take it off air and then show it again and so just in terms of capacity you know it might be that someone says well I'll take 52 episodes of this series and that's it I can't take any more but a 90-minute feature film, well, I can have a, I can have half a dozen of those because we'll do one every couple of months and the kids will watch it still and then we can repeat it and we can repeat it and, and it's fine. And so that there is a lot of, of, of reasons why that works. Um, creatively, feature films are very different because, you know, you're not telling an 11-minute story. You know, it's a 90-minute. And the other thing which it's kind of obvious but it's not is that it's a very different audience so if i'm making something that's a television series i will usually be making it for a very very narrow age range this is a 79 show that's it i'm not aiming at four-year-olds i'm not aiming at teenagers i'm not aiming at parents it's a 79 show and the broadcaster wants me to hit that demographic but feature animation is family there is not really a market for anything other than family because it's too expensive to make, it's too expensive to market. And so, yes, you can do a Paw Patrol movie because it's already a big brand, but if it was a new IP, no one would touch it because it's a preschool show and the only place it would sit is in the preschool block on a weekend where the ticket prices are ridiculously low 
it's often just a kid and a parent or just a kid on their own. Um, whereas if it's a mainstream family feature, you've got four full price tickets, two adults, two kids, or however many kids there are. So that's potentially four or five times as much money being made if it's a family film than a preschool film. And, and therefore, nobody wants preschool movies because you spend the same to market them. You pay for the advertising just the same. Same posters, the same marketing campaigns, you know, radio and TV spots. And so, unless it's an already unestablished brand, essentially, for, for anyone who's listening, you know, your, your target market is family animation. And that's it. There's no ifs and buts and maybes. That's your only market. But because of that, you tell the story in a very different way. You have to appeal to all those different age groups. Yes, you can't, um, you know, uh, make things that are too violent or too scary. Um, but also you, can, you need to bring in things that are sophisticated enough that the older kids will watch it. The parents will enjoy it. I mean, if you look at something like the Minions movies, I mean, you know, I enjoy those movies. They're hilarious. Um, my kids loved them when they were younger. And, and you go, what a great piece of content that is. What a great storytelling technique. You know, it's just amazing. And, and there's something really heartwarming about creating, telling a story that's going to unite, you know, older generations, younger generations, and, and everyone can come and enjoy it, rather than it being so kind of niche that it's, you know, specifically... Well, it is, and, and also, you know, there is... There's one of those strange things in the industry, which is we're all adults making animation that really we wouldn't watch. Yes, we've got to watch it if you've got, you know, young kids. But, you know, if you're making Peppa Pig, uh, you know, you'll be a 20 to 30 year old animator who's into video games, you know, I don't know, heavy metal, I don't know, maybe I'm being stereotypical here. Um, you know, you're not typically, unless you have kids, or unless you are particularly into animation from a technical exercise, you're not going to watch for fun Peppa Pig. You're going to be watching Marvel movies or, you know, whatever. You're going to be watching content appropriate to your age. And the, 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 the real problem in the industry is that, you know, the, the people who are making the stuff, me included, are not necessarily the consumer. And so there's always a bit of a disconnect. You're, you're making a preschool show and you're making it as well as you can because it's, you know, for that preschool audience and you want it to be brilliant. But it's not something you personally are going to watch for entertainment. You're going to watch it because it's for work um, or because your kids are there. You know. um, and, and the great thing about making family animation is that you're making it with you in mind as well. You're, you can watch these things, you know, that's the point. You can sit down and watch the film and you can enjoy it as part of the audience as well as being part of the production team. And so, you know, when I eventually sat down and watched the finished, finished, finished version of The Amazing Morris, you know, without, uh, and it was the moment when, when everything was done, I wasn't allowed to change anything. It was kind of, you know, that was it. I, you know, I, I could actually not relax because you were still nervous, but, but relax enough to actually watch it as a piece of entertainment. Um, you know, I genuinely enjoyed the film. I laughed, you know, there was a tear in my eye there was a scary moment you know i enjoyed the film uh, you know and and that is a really pleasant positive experience that you don't get if you're making a series necessarily um you know so it it, it does it does make things a little bit different it really does and it allows you to bring more of yourself into the film so you go i would find that funny my my, my young two-year-old won't but i will so let's put that in 
Um, but yes, there has to be stuff for the young kids as well. Um, so it, it allows you to be much more creative in that way. That's, that's a brilliant way of looking at it and really, uh, I think, a very clear uh, definition of the kind of differences, really, particularly in that more the, the TV series often has far more kind of compartmentalised niche audiences that are being targeted, whereas movies have to take a, a broader, more kind of family-inclusive um, perspective on stuff. I, I normally end um, uh, each episode asking if you could give a... the relay the best piece of career advice you've ever been given or the best kind of feedback that you've ever been given so the the best one it's one of those things i haven't had much opportunity for people to actually give me advice how i wish they would um but but there is there was one moment when i was because uh, i was at itv uh, for, for a while um and i was leaving itv to go freelance and someone i'd worked with um uh, a fabulous guy called Ian Pelling, who I'd known him when I was at Cosgrove Hall and he was the managing director and he'd moved on and was doing other things. And and I said to him, look, would you mind just, just give me some advice because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a job, I'm going to go freelance. I don't really know what to expect. And, and you're, you're there ahead of me. You're, you're kind of six months to a year ahead of where I'm going to be. What's your, what's your best piece of advice? And he gave me a piece of advice which genuinely has been really really useful and has has definitely been my my mantra over the years um and and he said be open to things that you wouldn't expect to do and the reason he said that to me is that his background was itel and in costco four films and he was just starting a new job as the managing director of a documentary company now i kind of went so he told me the name. It was a company called Darlow Smithson that did Touching the Void and, and all sorts of great stuff. And, and, and I naively had not really heard of them. And, uh, and, I, and he said, I'm starting at Darlow Smithson. I said, congratulations. What kind of animation do they do? And he went, they don't do animation, Andrew. They do, they do documentaries. So I went, what? What earth are you doing there then? And he said, got to be open to doing new things. You don't know where it's going to take you. And for me... I didn't know I was going to be an animation producer. I thought I was going to be doing, you know, other stuff. And being open to new opportunities meant that I ended up doing animated series. I ended up doing documentary features. And that led me to doing an animated feature. And now I'm doing live action features as well as animation features. And I think if I had decided at the beginning, I want to be a feature animation producer, I honestly don't know how I could have got here. I don't think I could have planned it. But if you're open to the possibilities and you're open to new experiences and, and new opportunities, the great thing is you don't know where it's going to take you. And I genuinely couldn't have got to where I am now without having done all of those other weird kind of sidestep things that you would never have said, oh, yes, go and make a documentary, Andrew. That's the best thing to do if you want to get into animation. Because that's nonsense. Of course it's not. Um, but I couldn't have got here had I not done that. So my, my, my best piece of advice would be the same, which is don't, don't close your focus down to the point where you turn things down because you just don't think it's always the right thing. Be open to the possibility that it might take you in an unexpected direction and that you might end up where you want to be because of that weird left turn somewhere. 
Amazing. What a fantastic piece of advice to end the episode on. Uh, thanks so much for this, Andrew. It's been a really fascinating chat. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been great fun. Great. And thanks for tuning in to this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did chatting. Don't forget to look out for future episodes and please subscribe and rate us if you haven't done so already. Until next time, stay animated.